Here we are, back again. We can do this all day. Episode 13, Avengers Age of Ultron Review. Ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. I just like to make it as uncomfortable as possible for everybody listening. I thought you were going to say you just like to make it uncomfortable for me. No, I mean, that that works too. I like to make multiple people uncomfortable at the same time, if at all possible. I'm not even going to ask what your motivation is. I don't think I want it. I just think it's funny. Okay. I think it's kind of funny too. So keep making people uncomfortable. That's a great, that's going to be great for our ratings. (laughs) I mean, they haven't left yet, so. Okay, here we go. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. Welcome to the show. It's Memorial Day weekend for us over here. Three-day weekend for some of us. Not for all of us, but, you know, we do what we can. The cicadas are singing, and it is 62 and raining. Gloriously bizarre late May here in the nation's capital. From the listener's perspective, it's only been three weeks since Guardians of the Galaxy dropped, but this is our first recording session in about in another five weeks. We've had uh, life, life interrupting, as it sometimes does, but we're back. Emily, it's good to see you again. Nice to see you, too. On the one hand, it feels like it's been a while, but on the other hand, like once we settle in, it just kind of feels like no time has passed at all. I don't know how you feel. No, I mean, it always takes a minute to like get it warmed up. I feel like I feel like it always takes a second, especially because I usually like lay on the couch for about five hours before we record. So getting upright and then recording again. Jolting you back into some sort of reality, our reality, that is. And we're actually, you know, it's funny. I was looking at the calendar. We're rapidly approaching our one year anniversary. Is that not crazy? Already? Really? We recorded our first show in like mid-July of last year. And here we're in the last weekend of May. That's nuts. Wow. Our schedule is going to be a little odd that month, but we'll have to find some way to celebrate somehow. All right. So tonight we will be reviewing Avengers Age of Ultron. But first, MCU news. There was quite a bit of it on our end. I mean, it's now, like I was saying, it's Memorial Day weekend for us right now. And a lot has happened in the last five weeks since we recorded. Try to go through some of this kind of quickly. We got our first trailer for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which opens on September 3rd, 2021. I'm very excited to see this. It's basically a kung fu movie on a Disney budget. So I think that's rather exciting. And just a few days ago, we got our first trailer for Eternals, which opens up on November 5th, 2021. So later this fall, I think it's going to be unreal. It doesn't look like anything we've ever seen before. The director, Chloe Zhao, fresh off of her Oscar win earlier this year. It should be really neat. Before all of that, well, I think kind of between the two, we got the Marvel Phase 4 movie trailer that had sort of that celebration of stuff that they'd already done, which was, you know, it was a bit schmaltzy, but it was fun. It showed some new footage and dates for the upcoming films. So they did a little thing for Black Widow, which still is opening up on July 9th, dropping on Disney+. Plus. Shang-Chi, which we talked about on September 3rd. Eternals, which we talked about on November 5th. Of course, we got our first look at Angelina Jolie, Gemma Chan, and totally ripped Kumal Nanjiani, who looks like he's been doing nothing but eating chicken and working out three times a day for the last year. They also dropped the date for uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, which is December 17th later this year. <laughs> Emily's doing her happy dance for Spider-Man No Way Home. I know she's very 
excited to it's see the day this. after my birthday. Already, already planned. Hopefully, movie theaters will be maybe not necessarily full swing, but maybe there'll be one or two actually open. You're fully vaccinated now. I'm fully vaccinated now. An early Christmas present. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is still opening up on March 25th of next year. Crazy rumors about who and what we're going to see in this one. None of it's substantiated, but some of the stuff that's been circulating online is just bananas. Thor Love and Thunder comes out May 6, 2022. It was recently revealed that Russell Crowe will be joining the cast, which currently already includes Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, Christian Bale, Chris Pratt, Jamie Alexander, which is kind of a pleasant surprise. Looks like Sif made it through uh, the Infinity War Endgame tumult. Dave Bautista, Palm Clementieff, Karen Gillan, Sean Gunn, Jeff Goldblum. It sounds like he's going to be reprising his role as the Grandmaster in that one. So it's going to be quite an interesting film. And furthermore, they put in some additional dates for upcoming Marvel films. Black Panther 2, which now is officially titled Black Panther Wakanda Forever, opens July 8th, 2022. Captain Marvel 2, now retitled The Marvels, opens up on November 11th, 2022. And then the rest of it is pretty much what we already knew about. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, February 17th, 2023. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, May 5th, 2023. And of course, the thing that I was kind of excited to see, the little tease with an image from the uh, Fantastic Four logo. So that is still in the pipeline. And of course, the Loki series on Disney Plus. They moved it back a couple days, so it's now going to drop on Wednesday, June the 9th, instead of Friday, July the 11th. So we're going to have a Wednesday release for that, and I think the episodes are going to come out on Wednesdays for that entire series, which will be six episodes long. That's it for news, and now on to our main event, Avengers Age of Ultron, which opened on May the 1st, 2015. It was the first of two films in the MCU that came out that year, the second one being Ant-Man. It stars, of course, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, Don Cheadle, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, Paul Bettany, Kobe Smulders, and James Spader. It was written and directed by Joss Whedon. At the box office, the film's final budget was estimated at about $444 million, although some gross estimates are as high as $495 million. But no matter, this film went on to make over 1.4 billion again that's billion with a b dollars so another billion dollar film for marvel was there really ever any doubt that there was going to be a sequel to avengers <laughs> there's really no background information on this film i mean we knew it was coming weeks before avengers 1 even opened up so 2015 it finally arrives Age of Ultron has never been a favorite movie of mine. I think there's too much information presented in too many really short scenes that go back and forth in this really chaotic fashion that I find kind of hard to keep up with. I think this movie falls into the same trap as Iron Man 3 and Thor The Dark World. And we talked about this with being sort of a shortcoming of a lot of the Phase 2 movies. It's a movie whose primary objective is to set up future movies. It does still kind of tell its own self-contained, cohesive story, but the story has too much excessive baggage necessitated by having to check off all these boxes, you end up with this really big and bloated film that, frankly, I don't think always makes a lot of sense. And, you know, while we're at it, let's address the elephant in the room very briefly. Joss Whedon does have a reputation for being a jerk to his people on the set. That's probably a whole different discussion. I don't think we're going to get into that too much, if at all. But what I will say is that going back to our discussion of Avengers, I still find large parts of his writing and directing style just really annoying. The quick 
with non-stop quirky quips, the rapid-fire dialogue, and the exposition that don't give you an opportunity to figure out what's going on. He's still got this trope of making you think that one main character is going to die, and then he unexpectedly kills off a different character. And then, of course, finally, and perhaps most seriously to me, and perhaps you as well, his seemingly complete, utter inability to properly write Steve Rogers. Having said that, like a lot of the movies that we've been reviewing on this podcast that I didn't like as much before, I do have a somewhat greater appreciation of this one now that I've had a chance to kind of look at it again and analyze it much more critically. I no longer fall asleep during it, <laughs> as I often used to do, but it's still not even close to being one of my favorites. I think the one thing that I don't understand about this movie is how, given that Avengers was directed by Joss Whedon and also Age of Ultron was directed by Joss Whedon, is that Avengers is so high up on my list like it's in my top five and it's a very good movie in my opinion and then it's followed up with this movie which is arguably bad like it's fine but it's also bad i have to say there haven't been many times that i've pulled out my phone to play among us while watching a movie for one of these episodes but it happened <laughs> uh -oh. like five times while i was watching age of ultron oh wow that's kind of a significant level of boredom i would say you've never done that before with any of the other ones no not really I mean, maybe Thor The Dark World. I was thinking you were going to say that one. That's probably that one. Yeah, I guess Avengers had the advantage of being, in some ways, kind of a first film. The thought is, the first film in a series tends to be really good and the sequel tends to suck. You're going back to the well, you're trying to repeat stuff. Or, you know, in the case of a lot of the Phase 2 movies in the MCU, the film mainly exists to establish a bunch of stuff for future films. I think that's a big part of perhaps why this film directed and written or at least co-written by the same person, two different films, two completely different opinions because the first one was establishing all this stuff and it was kind of new to us and they weren't really worrying about the future. They were staying very present. And this one, it's kind of like, all right, we got a big laundry list of stuff we got to accomplish in this film. We got to do it in like two hours and 23 minutes. Let's go. We need the Infinity Stones. We need Ultron. We need them all to fight. We need the Vision to show up. We need Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. And it's just kind of because becomes a convoluted mess as a result. I mean, our rankings, you know, out of 23 films so far, I've got it at number 16. It's one tick ahead of Thor The Dark World and one tick behind the original Iron Man, which, you know, I don't like quite as much all these years on, but I still enjoy. Where did you have it? I have Age of Ultron at 17. Iron Man 3 at 15. Guardians of the Galaxy at 16. Age of Ultron at 17. Thor The Dark World at 18. That's pretty low down, but, you know, you and I are kind of in the same ballpark. We're only one spot apart. Let's see what we can find out. The film opens with the Avengers assaulting a Hydra facility commanded by Baron Wolfgang von Strucker in the Eastern European nation of Sokovia. This is the same compound we saw in the post credit scene of Captain America the Winter Soldier, where Hydra's doing stuff with Loki's scepter. The compound is protected by an energy shield, and Strucker's goons are outfitted with some pretty advanced equipment. Energy weapons and personal flying devices, things like that. The Avengers are there for the scepter, and Strucker's high-tech welcoming committee has pretty much confirmed that it's here. Also in the compound, are the twins, the two seemingly superpowered beings also seen in the aforementioned post-credit scene, who apparently now work for Strucker. I like how the opening scene with the Avengers attacking briefly highlights each team member, almost like the filmmakers are reacquainting you with them in case you manage to forget who they were and what they could do. The scene also demonstrates how they've gelled as a fighting force over the past three years. They can anticipate each other's moves very fluidly and implicitly now. For example, Hulk taking out the bunker for Natasha, Thor and Cap doing the hit the shield with the hammer routine. Of course, this is 
is also where we get Cap's now infamous language line in response to Tony's use of a naughty word. Since when would a guy who grew up in 1930s Brooklyn care about cuss words? I just need someone to tell me why in the world he would care at all. I think it's infamous because it's stupid. And their listeners are first example of why we, in this movie at least, of why we don't think Joss Whedon can write Captain America. I think Joss Whedon just has it in his head that Cap is just a big goody two-shoes. Kind of the stereotype of him in the comic book that he's just kind of this jingoistic patriotic dolt. Even though before he wrote this movie, there were two other Captain America movies that he could have gleaned information from and maybe realized that he wasn't that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe he could have, you know, watched them. Yeah. I mean, like, Guy took down all of S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't think he's as goody two-shoes as you think he yep. is. <laughs> Point well taken. Yeah, it does make you wonder, did did Whedon even bother to watch the prior films? It just seems like Cap does all this stuff in his own films, and then we get an Avengers film, and he kind of turns into a dunce. Fire from Strucker's compound is hitting the city nearby, causing damage and inflicting civilian casualties. So Tony deploys his Iron Legion, a group of automated Iron Man suits, to help protect the civilian populace. But the Sokovians aren't too happy that they're here. While Strucker prepares to surrender and delete computer files in an attempt to keep the Avengers from discovering the extent of what he's been doing, the twins leave the compound without permission. The guy has superhuman speed, an ability which Hawkeye discovers during the fight and in the process of which gets him severely wounded. Tony is finally able to infiltrate the compound and deactivate its defenses, leading Strucker's men to stand down. I also just want to know how impossibly easy it was for Tony to turn off the barrier and get into the compound. What's he been doing this whole time, just tooling around? Despite that, though, I do like the bit where after Tony beats up all those guys in the lab, he goes, good talk, and one guy goes, no, it wasn't. I think I missed the no, it wasn't. All as many times as I've seen this movie, I don't think I've ever heard that. It's like while he's still facing them after he's fired the little dart thingies. Yeah, it's when they... they They're writhing on the ground. Yeah, they pan from Tony to the guys, and the guys are all, you know, writhing on the ground, and... No, it wasn't. I think somebody else has something too, but that's the one that I remember. Well, one of my favorite parts in there is, you know, Strucker goes into the command center. is like, you know, report. It's the Avengers. And then they're talking like, can our forces hold them? And the same guy says, it's the Avengers. (laughs) I did always find that kind of funny. Do like the part too where Strucker, he does like the we will never surrender style. No surrender. Yeah. It's like, we will never surrender. And then he turns around and he's like, we're going to surrender. (laughs) I intend to surrender. Yeah, it was kind of easy how Tony got that shield down. He fired like one missile underground and it like blew something up under the base. It did seem kind of incredibly easy given how much they were having to fight Strucker's goons on the outside. With the fight basically over, Natasha initiates a lullaby, which is apparently the Avengers' new way of calming down the Hulk and reverting him back into Bruce Banner. It involves Natasha talking to him in this quiet, sultry way while touching his hands in a gentle, almost sensuous manner. Do you notice how during that scene, Natasha turns away and looks down after the lullaby. When Hulk starts to turn back into Banner, it's, it's kind of like this sudden coy look of shyness, like she just made out with someone or had sex with someone or something like that. It's like this acknowledgement that this act, which is, you know, for the Avengers purposes, purely an operational thing on the surface, it's also quite an intimate thing for Natasha and Bruce. I don't know if that was his idea or Scarlet's idea, but I actually kind of like it. I thought it was a nice touch. I mean, do you want me to talk about how I think the Natasha-Banner relationship is stupid and forced and ridiculous in general? Or should we talk about it later? I guess we can get started now. I know we can't have a movie without romantic relationships. I get it. That's what people want to see. Especially for a character like Natasha, but ugh. This whole storyline is one of my least favorite things in the MCU, and it's not like I want her to have a relationship with Clint or anyone else. Like, clearly and especially, Clint has a wife who we meet later in the movie, and Steve is busy pining after Peggy. But 
There's at least established rapport with Clint and with Steve. You know what rapport we haven't established at all? Natasha and Bruce. I mean, besides the fact that he almost killed her and probably traumatized her in the process in the last Avengers movie. All right, the scene in India at the beginning of Avengers doesn't count as a rapport. I know it's kind of weird rapport. She was ready to kill him with the Legion of S.H.I.E.L.D. guys. It seems to me that they were trying to build something back then, maybe a little awkwardly, but I think they were trying to do something at that time. It just doesn't seem so out of the blue to me. And besides, it's been, like, what, three? years since the last movie? We have no idea what's been going on between the two of them in that time. I mean, we know what's been going on with Natasha and S.H.I.E.L.D. She's been kind of busy, it would seem. And if something had been going on between the two of them, don't you think they might have mentioned something Like, at least in passing. I mean, unless it's explicitly brought up, we have no way of knowing. It's not like where we can build some outer canon books or ask the director, like, what happened in those three years? Like, you could, but they could just make stuff up. I think my point being, we know what Natasha has been up to in general, but we haven't seen all the however many missions the Avengers have gone on between the first movie and this movie. And for all I know, they've been, like, chatting or becoming buddy-buddy or something like that that would sort of lend itself to that scene not being quite so awkward. I get where you're coming from. I don't know. For my mind, for whatever reason, can fill in the gap between the first movie and this one. I guess it's a little more easily than you can. Cap incapacitates Strucker, but not before having a brief run-in with the female twin who appears to have telekinetic abilities. We'll obviously talk about Wanda more, but I absolutely love how creepy they play her in this movie. The red eyes, the sort of glitchy way that she moves like she's a ghost from a horror movie. One thing that I remember they marketed really hard with the movie when it was coming out, at least to me, it seemed like they wanted it to seem spooky. And at least with Wanda, I think they did a good job of that. And she's got those absurdly long quadruple jointed fingers like you do. A little spider hands. I mean, the listeners can't see it, but can you actually do like this, like what she oh, no, does? Oh no, I can't kinda... do that, no. It's like she's playing the piano in midair. Tony enters the Hydra lab where he finds all sorts of goodies, including what appears to be an assembly facility for manufacturing some sort of android en masse, one of those giant flying Chitari thingies, and of course, Loki's scepter. As he's about to take the scepter, Tony is assaulted psychically by the same twin who causes him to have visions of the Avengers all dead or dying while a massive Chitari armada invades Earth. After a moment, he seems to shake it off and grabs the scepter. Welp. So much for Tony overcoming his PTSD in Iron Man 3, as we are presented once again with Tony's nightmares of Armageddon. The Avengers fly home with the Scepter in their cool new Quinjet and land at their cool new headquarters in New York City, the former Stark Tower, which is now called Avengers Tower, appropriately enough. You think they need a permit to fly that Quinjet in the city? (laughs) Maybe that's addressed in the Sokovia Accords, too. They're a menace to local air traffic. I mean, I would think so if you have to get a permit to fly a drone. I feel like you need a permit to fly a Quinjet. But... It's the Avengers. Well, maybe they don't get all sorts of free passes. Who knows? New York City ordinances being what they are. Hey, 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 you can't park that here. You can't fly that jet here. Get that thing out of here. Thor agrees to allow Tony and Bruce to analyze the scepter before he returns it to Asgard. Jarvis believes the stone in the scepter contains some sort of computer code. Maria Hill gives Cap the rundown on the twins, Wanda and Pietro Maximoff orphaned at age 10 when a shell collapsed their apartment building in war-torn Sokovia. Apparently, they volunteered to be experimented on by Strucker. Clint is having his wound tended to by one Dr. Helen Cho, who's been spearheading a new technology that allows her to create synthetic tissue. She says her regeneration cradle back in Seoul could do it in about 20 minutes. I love uh, when Clint is being tended to on the jet, and I guess Bruce asks, how did I do? Because, you know, I guess he's not fully cognizant of what Hulk does. And, of course, Thor is rattling off all those, you know, oh, they're 
the cries and screams of whatever of his victims and you know Natasha kind of glares at Thor like no 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 ixnay on the F day and so it's like oh no the the cries of the injured and tales of sprained deltoids and gout poor Thor he means well on a more serious note, that interaction between Cap and Maria Hill was interesting. Cap is so complicated, and in this movie in particular, and I don't mean that in a good way, because first there's that dumb language, hard-hitting Cap, and then there's this other Cap who clearly understands why Wanda and Pietro would let themselves be experimented on for the sake of their country and their possible future. It's like character whiplash almost. Like, this is more Cap. This is more Cap as I know him, where he thinks of things complicated, like, things are complicated and he thinks of things complexly compared to the cap that we just saw 10 minutes ago talking about watch your tongue what Mm -hmm. who (laughs) well i mean you know who i blame it does seem a little jarring cap just kind of vacillates back and forth between the cap we know and this cap that lives in joss whedon's strange alternate universe of formality and whatever i don't even know what to call it it's just bizarre After analyzing the stone from the scepter, Tony and Bruce determine that it contains a highly sophisticated form of artificial intelligence. Insisting that they need a suit of armor around the world to keep it safe from otherworldly threats like the Chitari, Tony convinces Bruce to help him covertly integrate this newfound artificial intelligence into his Iron Legion protocol while they still have the scepter in their possession, hopefully culminating in Tony's long-imagined Ultron Global Defense Program. After nearly three days of nonstop work, they're still having difficulty integrating the AI with the Iron Legion, so they decide to take a break and attend the Avengers' big, yay, we finally got the Scepter party at Avengers Tower, while Jarvis continues to work. Jarvis is successful, but Ultron unexpectedly becomes sentient and attacks Jarvis before beginning to build something in the robotics lab. I always feel bad for Jarvis here. Not that Jarvis would really feel any of what happened to him, because compared to Ultron, he isn't sentient but he was just trying to do his job and he got shredded apart for it and sometimes whenever my laptop does that little spinning beach ball of death when it's thinking really hard i think of jarvis because that's probably what was happening to him i think it's very telling that you feel bad for jarvis i think it's a sign that the writers overall have done their job in making us feel sympathetic towards this computer program jarvis is not just this disembodied voice in tony's armor or in the house or in the in avengers tower or whatnot he's a member of the avengers and even though he's just kind of talking and giving status reports and so forth he has like just enough personality to make him likable and make us care about him i think that's good writing has tony never seen terminator or is his ego so heavily inflated that he honestly didn't think that messing with artificial intelligence on this level would do any harm i've always had a bit of a problem with that but even more so why does banner cave into helping him so easily he's definitely the more reality grounded person of the two and i just can't i can't figure out why he would jump at the chance as quickly as he does i expected better from him and so the party happens there are lots of people there Sam Wilson, Rhodey, Hill, Dr. Cho, they all put in appearances. Lots of fun character moments, including Natasha's almost declaration of love for Bruce. And then, of course, we get the now legendary scene at the end of the party with everybody trying to lift Mjolnir off the table and Cap budging it a bit, which may lead to future discussions about whether or not Cap realized at that moment, spoiler alert, that he could lift Mjolnir, but chose not to so as not to embarrass Thor. We also get the one and only, not even by name mention, of Steve and Sam's search for Bucky, as well as the Stanley cameo for the movie. It figures that 
I'm just going to comment on how it, it figures that I would mention Bucky figu- in a movie would, that he's not even you, in. I did he, it last he, time too. He's, he's he's not in it. He's not even mentioned in it, and yet somehow you found a way. You've moved on from Venom references to Bucky references, even in movies where. Oh, I'll find a. I'll I'll shoehorn Venom into this. I'll think of something. God. <laughs> if anything, I mean, I'm in charge of the editing, so I could just overlay me being like Venom. Yeah. Okay. It would simultaneously annoy me and crack me up if I'm listening to the cut and just somewhere at the like at the very end a cold outro, just venom. Or I'll just leave all this in. That would be funny. The Mjolnir scene is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Actually, I love whenever you get to the stage of a party where it's like just the host and a few stragglers and close friends that haven't bothered to start cleaning up and instead it's time to just mess around and everybody probably wants to go home but like why not argue about the magic flying hammer instead (laughs) yeah no one wants to go home no one wants to clean up in our avengers review we talked about how badly and how and we did it this time too how badly we think joss whedon writes cap i have to give him some credit here of all the people who could have pointed out to banner that natasha is interested in him he chose to make it steve not clint which you know could have made sense since he's so close to Natasha, not Maria Hill, who's a woman, or even Tony, who's a good friend of his. It was Steve Rogers. I thought it was an unconventional choice because Peggy Carter notwithstanding, Cap's not exactly a love doctor, but I think this ends up working out really well. It could just as easily have been, you know, say Thor going to Banner and talking about grand gestures of epic love or Tony making smart-ass remarks about it, but instead we have the most straight-laced Avenger giving Bruce Banner some gentle but honest advice. I like the take it from the world's foremost expert on waiting too long remark, too. I just think it's a neat and probably frequently overlooked scene. Suddenly, Ultron, having taken over several Iron Legion robots, attacks the Avengers in the tower, having determined that in order to keep the world safe, he must destroy the Avengers. The team fights off Ultron's proxy robots and destroys the makeshift mechanoid body that Ultron was inhabiting, but not before one of the robots escapes with the scepter. Meanwhile, in Sokovia, the lab instructor's headquarters reactivates and starts churning out new Ultrons. So earlier I mentioned that they did a really good job making Wanda creepy for the movie, which I absolutely love. But then I think they really dropped the ball with Ultron. Like he was five times more creepy in the trailer at least. And here he's scary, I guess guess, but I was prepared for that horror movie vibe and I didn't really get that here. Unrelated though, I do really like this fight a lot because no one is ready for it. Obviously, they're still in their party clothes, but they still do a pretty good job of working together even though they essentially lose. My favorite part is when Hawkeye tosses Cap his shield from across the room. I just always thought like that looked really cool. That does look really cool because he tosses it and then Cap just does the spinning move. I just love it when Cap does spinning moves. He does the spinning move to fling the shield at Ultron. I'd pay good money for scruffy underdog Clint Barton, Captain America. (laughs) It is kind of a cool fight. I just kind of wanted to touch up on something you had said. It's like Ultron is supposed to look menacing. And I suppose, you know, we have to kind of buy in to the belief that to everyone in the movie, he looks menacing. But I think he looks kind of goofy, in all honesty. I know he's supposed to look scary. He doesn't kind of make me shake in my boots or anything. Thor tries to follow the Legionnaire with a scepter, but the trail has gone cold. Ultron has escaped into the internet. The rest of the team confront Tony about his covert creation with about the level of condemnation that he was expecting of them. He insists that something needed to be done to protect the planet. Cap counters that they will face the threat together whenever it happens and, if necessary, lose together. 
Meanwhile, in a church that lies in the geographic center of Sokovia, the Maximoffs are recruited by Ultron, now sporting a new body, to help him destroy the Avengers. The Maximoffs have beef with Tony because they hold him and his weapons responsible for the deaths of their parents. Wanda has already gotten into Tony's head, and now Ultron intends for her to get inside the heads of the other Avengers and tear the team apart from the inside. The Avengers get word that Ultron killed Strucker in his prison cell. Assuming he did it to keep Strucker quiet about something, Tony draws a likely connection between Strucker and a black market arms dealer named Ulysses Claw. A photo of him with a brand on his neck further connects Claw to the African nation of Wakanda. Jeez, I wonder what that is. The home of vibranium, the strongest metal on earth, and the stuff from which Cap's shield is constructed. For all that I wish this movie was, because, you know, it's definitely low on both of our lists, I do think it does a decent job of setting up the next round of films. You get to see the discord between Tony and the rest of the team for Civil War. You even hear some talk of the end game, the setup for Wakanda and Vibranium. I think a lot of this is working towards Civil War specifically because that movie is kind of like Avengers 2.5, but there's connection to other upcoming films too. I think that that's kind of the whole point of this movie. It's less of a self contained movie and something to establish stuff that's yet to come. And on the one hand, I think that's a weakness of the film because you're spending too much time trying to check off items on your list rather than tell a good story. But looking back on it, it must have done something right because you know, all the stuff that you see later on, it's not like you're like, oh, when did, where did that happen? How did that come about? When we see Wakanda and Black Panther and we see Ulysses Claw, I was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I remember him. I, I get it. I know I know what that's all about. And the Infinity Stones, of course, hey, okay, I remember what that was all about. And they reference Ultron in Infinity War. And so I guess maybe we owe it more of a debt of gratitude than we're giving it. Ultron and the Maximals go to Claw's base outside Johannesburg to purchase vibranium from him. Can I roll my eyes at the intro to this scene where the lower third location title says salvage yard african coast as the location as if there isn't a lot of coast to be had on the continent of africa especially because they make it clear where we are almost moments later i was wondering that myself because in fact when i watched the film again i was sort of expecting it to say johannesburg south africa or even like the south african coast why didn't they just put that there it's a nit to pick but it obviously stuck out for the two of us some you know i guess a lot of other people might have noticed it too it's just weird during the transaction between Ultron and Claw, Ultron severs Claw's left arm. The Avengers arrive shortly thereafter, resulting in a massive melee between them, Ultron and his bots, the Maximovs, and Claw's men. Ultron's bots ultimately flee with the vibranium. When Ultron gets mad, he kind of sounds like Obadiah Stane. I don't think that means anything, I just always notice that. It sounds like Obadiah Stane in what way? Just kind of that rising anger sort of thing? Or... Yeah, that voice. I hadn't noticed that before. I don't think it means anything. I don't think it means anything special. It's just whenever I hear it, I'm like, Hmm. Obadiah? That's not the first time you've brought Obadiah Stane back. You resurrected him before, earlier in the run of our show, and I can't remember what it was about. No, probably. Wanda does mind whammies on Thor, Cap, and Natasha, but is disabled by Clint when she tries to do it to him. Pietro retrieves her, however, and when she recovers, she's able to do the mind whammy on Bruce, who hulks out and goes on a mindless rampage through Johannesburg. Tony deploys Veronica, a space-based anti-Hulk weapon composed of a containment unit and a massive Hulkbuster armor. Tony is able to subdue Hulk, but not before causing considerable damage to downtown Jayburg. Okay, time to throw Joss Whedon under the bus yet again. First of all, why does he like having his villains engage in these ridiculously complex schemes that involve them manipulating the Avengers psychologically into destroying themselves? He did it in the first film, and now he's 
he's doing it again in this film. Why go to the trouble of having Wanda mind screw the Avengers when Ultron can just lie low for a while, build his army of death androids, and then overwhelm them with brute force? I mean, it may not make as interesting a movie, but it's a lot less complicated, and I just don't see why he doesn't do that. Second of all, I like Veronica, and I like the Hulkbuster armor, but my god, that fight in Johannesburg was ludicrous. I mean, yes, it's a comic book movie, and there is bound to be at least a little catastrophic destruction, but I mean, this fight is just absolutely gratuitous. I expect this kind of disaster porn from a DC movie. I'm looking at you, Man of Steel, but not Marvel. I've always thought that the Marvel films were good about dialing down the chaos a notch just before it gets too silly, but I think they really dropped the ball on this one. I think when I first saw this movie, and then again probably every other time, this fight is where I get bored. Everything else in the movie made sense, but this whole fight in Johannesburg is like, okay, and... Why are we doing this? I imagine that there could have been a better way to have Wanda mind whammy them and start the process of turning them on each other rather than destroy a whole major city and kill a bunch of people, especially mm -hmm. when there's still an hour and a half left in the movie at this point. I'll admit the first time I saw it, you know, I saw it in the theater on opening night. I nodded off probably right around this point. Yeah, I <laughs> probably had a long day at work, but I remember falling asleep and it was right around this time. And there's just something that the fight, it's like one of the Michael Bay Transformers movies is just this kind of noisy and monotonous and chaotic and it's like I didn't really care. So I feel like they lost me for the rest of the film. The fallout and backlash resulting from the destruction in Johannesburg as well as the psychological hangover from Wanda's attacks forced the team to go into hiding. Clint flies them to his farm where he, his wife Laura, and their two kids soon to be three kids, live off the grid. So the one thing about this movie that I won't say everyone, but a lot of people hate is the thing that I love. I love that Clint has a family off grid. I think it's adorable and I love everything about it. And I will hear no negative words from anyone at all. Thank you. I have no problem with Clint having a family off the grid. No issue with that at all. I do have a problem with the fact that Joss Whedon probably did it to draw a ton of attention to him so that we would think Hawkeye was going to be the one getting killed off at the end of the movie. Thor's mind whammy has him particularly spooked as he has visions of a blind Heimdall telling him that he, Thor, will bring about the destruction of Asgard. More about this in our review of Thor Ragnarok later this year. That conversation between Clint and Lara about his avenging, I'm convinced, like I said a moment ago, that that was yet another instance of Joss Whedon setting things up to make it look like he was going to be the one to die later in the movie, and then he surprises us from left field and kills off somebody else instead. Because, you know, it's like I felt like I was getting all emotionally invested and Clint and his relationship with his family. What was it that Lara says? You need to be sure that this team has your back. It's kind of like this real intense conversation between two spouses that kind of makes you become really invested in them so that when one of them gets killed off later in the movie, it hurts that much more. Ultron goes to Dr. Cho's lab in Seoul, South Korea, and uses the scepter to enslave her so that he can use her to make him a new body with her regeneration cradle, the gem in the scepter, and the vibranium he procured from Claw. Right after the scene with Ultron and Cho, we get that scene with Natasha and Bruce outside the bathroom, where Bruce is talking about how he needs her to run, and how Natasha wants to run with him, and how he doesn't think that's a good idea, and how there is no future for the two of them. I said during our Avengers review that I actually like the relationship between the two of them in this movie, and I still stand by that. I know you disagree with me, but I'm going to stand with that one. However, the more I watch the scene, the less I like it. The scene, that is. How they interacted with each other in the first hour of the film seemed very natural to me, but in in this scene, it's like the Wanda mind whammies have given them both reason to suddenly ratchet up the desperation with which they seem to want each other. And I think this does two things. One, it makes their chemistry suddenly feel much more forced and artificial. And two, 
it almost makes it seem like their entire attraction to each other was artificially inflated by these crazy Wanda dreams. It does make me wonder, maybe this is why they were so lukewarm to each other in Infinity War and Endgame. For me, there wasn't really a reason for them to be together in the first place. You know, like I said earlier, their only previous interactions before this movie were Natasha almost killing Bruce in India and Bruce almost killing Natasha on the helicarrier. So it's like, what are we doing here besides adding just a touch of romance? Which is fine, I guess, but if you needed that, why not bring Pepper back? Or Jane? Or keep hammering home Steve's pining for Peggy? I just don't see the point. After another brief argument with Cap about their situation, Laura asks Tony if he can fix their tractor. He goes into the barn and finds, lo and behold, Nick Fury. Before giving the team a pep talk, Fury informs them that Ultron is seemingly everywhere now. What's he say? Guy's multiplying faster than a Catholic rabbit and seems to be trying to build something, but he knows not what. Ultron is also trying to go after nuclear missile launch codes, but something out there in the internet is one step ahead of him, constantly changing the codes. And then it dawns on them that no one has had any contact with Helen Cho recently. The team leaves the Barton farm. Cap, Clint, and Natasha head to Seoul to check on Dr. Cho. Tony heads to the Nexus Internet Hub in Oslo, Norway, and Fury takes Banner back to New York. Thor goes to London to seek the help of Eric Selvig in interpreting his apocalyptic visions. They go to the Water of Sights, a reflection of a body of water, apparently there's one in each of the nine realms, where if the water spirits accept Thor, I'll admit I didn't entirely understand all this, they will allow him to access the dream again. Among other things, he sees Ultron, some cataclysmic world-ending event, and four of the Infinity Stones, the Tesseract, the Power Stone, the Aether, and the Gem in the Scepter, which we now know is the Mind Stone, which he also sees embedded in the head of the Vibranium body. I think this scene is here for two and only two reasons. One, the obligatory shirtless Hemsworth scene, and two, to show us the Infinity Stones. Am I missing something here? I see nothing wrong with the shirtless Chris Hemsworth put in the movie purely for the female gaze. There are too damn many scenes in this movie. <laughs> They're all, like, only 30 seconds long, and Whedon cuts back and forth between all of them a ton. This is one of the reasons I found this movie so confusing to follow over the years. There's too much information being presented too quickly in spurts that are too short. You know, we go from the farm to Cho, to Thor, to Cap and Tony, to Fury, back to Thor, back to the team, back to Cho, all in a span of like three minutes. I just think that's crazy. Cho begins uploading Ultron's cerebral matrix into the new vibranium scepter stone powered body. Wanda can read his thoughts, its consciousness, and sees his plan for global extinction. Ultron tells her that in order to survive future global catastrophes, life on Earth must evolve. And apparently that means getting rid of the weak. Wanda, realizing that she and Pietro are on the wrong side, covertly releases Cho from her mind slavery. She pauses the upload, but Ultron catches on quickly and injures her and kills the rest of her staff. He wants to continue the upload, but he has to sever the connection and evacuate as he detects the Quinjet arriving. Cap enters the lab and finds the wounded Cho, who tells him he needs to find the cradle with the body and the stone and get them to Tony right away. Ultron and his bots are transporting the cradle by tractor trailer. Cap engages them, but loses the shield. Natasha, who's deployed herself into the city on a really cool-looking motorcycle, retrieves it and catches up to Cap in the truck. Cap and Ultron end up on a commuter train while Natasha boards the truck in an attempt to take the cradle. Unfortunately, Ultron's bots go airborne with the trailer and Natasha in tow. She's able to get the cradle aboard the Quinjet somehow, but she's taken by the bots an instant later. Wanda and Pietro board the train to assist Cap in fighting Ultron. Ultron flees and kills the train conductor, leaving the train running out of control. Fortunately, Wanda is able to stop the runaway train while Pietro clears 
its path of civilians. I am convinced more than ever now that Joss Whedon either doesn't like Captain America or he just doesn't know what the hell to do with him. It's bad enough he doesn't know how to write his dialogue, although I do think it's better in this movie than in Avengers. But he's always making him look like the weakest, least capable Avenger, because he's always getting the stuffing beaten out of him in Whedon's movies. And, you know, I'm sorry Hawkeye fans, but... Cap should not be getting his ass kicked more than Clint. That's just me. I just think that's how it is. That said, I do like this action sequence because you get to see Steve spin around in the air and then throw his shield. It's like one of my favorite Cap moves of all time, and I will die on that hill. <laughs> Since we're talking about favorite moves and also kind of talking about Hawkeye, my favorite part of this whole scene is watching the Quinjet fly through the city, twisting through all those buildings and bridges, directing Natasha where to go. And I obviously have a soft spot for jets and planes, so you know that I had to bring that up. Regarding Cap, I don't really have anything to add that you haven't already said. He's really crummy in these Joss Whedon movies. So, speaking of the Quinjet, who do you think has the bigger problem with the Quinjet flying in their city? The New Yorkers or the citizens of Seoul? Probably the New Yorkers still. I was thinking the same thing. But yeah, it is kind of cool how it twists and dodges all the skyscrapers and stuff. Back at Avengers Tower with the Cradle, Tony reveals to Banner that he's figured out who the nuclear launch code changing entity is. It's Jarvis. He had scattered himself around the internet to avoid being completely compromised. Tony thinks that the only way they could defeat Ultron is to upload Jarvis into the new Vibranium slash Scepter Stone body. Banner, completely mystified that he's being talked into doing this for a second time, reluctantly goes along again. Meanwhile, Natasha, who's being held captive by Ultron in Sokovia, is able to get a primitive radio signal out to Barton. Cap, Wanda, and Pietro try to stop Tony and Bruce, and eventually Clint. While they're fighting, Thor shows up and lightnings the cradle, thus activating the body, having seen the body with the Mind Stone in his vision. He tells the team about the Infinity Stones and insists that the Avengers cannot defeat Ultron without the Vision's help. Vision, who speaks with Jarvis's voice, insists that he is neither Ultron nor Jarvis, and that he is on the side of life, meaning Ultron must be destroyed to save humanity. He then picks up Mjolnir, thus earning their trust. They all set out for Sokovia to confront Ultron. I love Vision, and I love Paul Bettany, but the way that they just shoehorned him into this movie so late in the game is really jarring to me. It always has been. Like I keep saying, they just cram too much stuff into this movie for the sake of setting stuff up in future movies. And like I said, obviously it sticks. All the stuff with Vision later on in the series works really well for me. So I'm glad they set it up, but they just did it really awkwardly, I think. His arrival is pretty sudden. I also noticed that you didn't make any notes in this movie about Cap's The Price of Freedom is High speech. Not impressed? There is so much crap going on in this movie that Cap's speech just gets lost. And it's probably not a good speech anyway, because Joss Whedon sucks at writing Captain America. There, that's my note. <laughs> Cap, Clint, Wanda, and Pietro work to help evacuate the civilians out of the city. Thor and Banner break into Strucker's compound. Banner frees Natasha. He wants to evacuate her so he doesn't risk turning into the Hulk amidst a civilian population, but she wants to, quote-unquote, finish the job, so she shoves him into a pit to get him to turn, which he does. Tony and Vision go to the church to confront Ultron, who releases his bots on the city to attack the Avengers. Vision is able to cut Ultron off from the internet so he can't escape. No matter, Ultron has used the remaining vibranium to construct a device that will lift the center of the city into the sky and then drop it, thus causing an extinction-level event that will destroy everyone on Earth. Oh, yeah. I forgot about this dropping the city bit. <laughs> I guess Ultron finally made it back into the end of the Cretaceous period in his internet search. 
<laughs> and so the big action set piece begins. And that's saying a lot because there are a lot of big action set pieces in this movie, but this is like the big, big action set piece of the movie. Pietro, aka Quicksilver, we might as well just go ahead and stick his codename in there now, is not my favorite of the bunch, but I do love how he just plows through like a dozen Ultron bots like they're bowling pins. I mean, you get hit by something moving that fast and it's going to leave a mark. I actually really like this Pietro. I know there's a lot of jokes online about him being like the dollar store Pietro compared to the one that we get in WandaVision. Spoilers, I guess. Sorry. But (laughs) I like this one. So there's two things in this movie that I like, but most people hate which is Clint's family and this version of Pietro. I didn't know that there were a lot of jokes about him being the dollar store Pietro. Oh, there's lots of jokes about it. Really? Yeah. I didn't realize people hated Clint's family that much. I just sort of figured all the Whedonites loved that. It's just, it's such a Joss Whedon kind of thing to do. I just sort of figured his fans at least liked that. I don't know why people don't like it. I just know that they don't. I might be tempted to dislike it just because it's a very Joss Whedon sort of thing. But on the surface, no, I don't think it's a problem. The inconsistency of Cap's characterization by way of his weird dialogue continues here. If you get hurt, hurt him back. If you get killed, walk it off. What? Who is this? Captain America or, you know, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman from Full Metal Jacket? Steve Rogers is many things, but he is most certainly not some gung-ho, you-want-to-live-forever drill sergeant type. It's like Whedon is writing every jingoistic, patriotic trope and stereotype he can think of into Cap, because that's who he genuinely seems to think that he is. I'm convinced of that. Fortunately, there's only like another 40 minutes or so of this nonsense, and then we, hopefully, don't have to see the likes of Joss Whedon in the MCU ever again. Of course, with all the dirt coming out about him in the press as of late, that's probably not a far-off conclusion. But anyway, by contrast, I love Hawkeye's conversation with Wanda when they're taking cover in the building. In fact, it's probably my favorite piece of dialogue in the entire movie. The city is flying. (laughs) We're fighting an army of robots, and I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense, but I'm going back out there because it's my job. I can't do my job and babysit. It doesn't matter what you did or what you were, but if you go back out there, you fight and you fight to kill. Stay in here, you're good, but if you step out that door, you are an Avenger. It's not a bombastic speech, but it's firm and it's realistic. It's like, if you don't want to fight, that's okay. I understand. But if you do decide to fight, you have to go out there and give it your all. I've always really liked Clint's relationship with Wanda, which we do get to see a little bit more in Civil War. I think he's so good with her because she's a lot like Natasha, you know, driven into a bad group like the KGB in the Red Room to try and do something good and then given a chance to redeem herself. And I think he knows that what he said to Wanda is probably what worked on Natasha. And thankfully, it also works on Wanda. He does seem to be really good good with the redemption stories, doesn't he? Side note, the move where Cap bounces his shield off the ground and Thor bats it through all the bots is really, really cool. I'm actually still thinking about how you didn't like Cap's you get killed, walk it off bit, and I think I agree, sort of. I like the line, but I think it was said by the wrong person. I think someone like Tony should have said that and not Steve. You know, it should have been Steve giving the we're the good guys pep talk at the beginning and then Tony making that quip. I think that would have been a lot more in his lane. Yeah, but to me it sounds funny but not really funny for Tony. I mean, if anyone's going to say something like that, I think it would probably be Nick Fury. I mean, I think Tony would just make some sort of a, you know, an outright smart alecky crack. It just sounds to me like something Nick Fury would say, more so than Tony. Wanda decides to come out of the building and join the fight. She begins dispatching bots ruthlessly. Tony, who's apparently been spending this whole fight trying to figure out what to do about the city that's about to fall from the sky, concludes that the only way to stop the extinction level event 
is to blow up the city. Cap naturally doesn't want to do this because of all the civilians still trapped up there with them. As if on cue, Nick Fury arrives with a helicarrier, equipped with evacuation shuttles, as well as a few friends, including Maria Hill, Rhodey, and even the Insight Helicarrier launch control dude that Rumlow almost killed in Winter Soldier. The Avengers gather in the church to keep Ultron from reversing the vibranium core and making the city plummet. Ultron and his entire army converge on them. There's a massive fight, and eventually, Thor, Tony, and Vision are able to subdue Ultron's primary body before Hulk punches him into next Tuesday. Ultron's remaining army attempts to flee, but most are taken down by Rhodey and Vision. The showdown in the church is easily my favorite scene in the entire movie, short though it is. As Emily may remember when we were both working together, this was my, <laughs> my training video of sorts for new members of our department to give them an idea of what it was like during the holidays. I particularly like how the first several seconds of that scene are musicless. I know you like this scene, but given our current situation with the brood X of cicadas, all I can think about is those Ultron bots are like aggressive cicadas that are just coming at you unrelentingly. I mean, there are a lot of cicadas out there, obviously, but I haven't been uh, attacked by any of them as of late, have you? No, like, but the, sometimes the tire... they just give out the sound whenever you hear them in the trees. It just gives off that feeling that like something is coming. I still think that that sound that they make, it's the sound of the Enterprise phasering a planet from orbit. That's just my little side thing. The only thing that I've seen the cicadas attack so far are like the tires of my car. Because sometimes I'll come out, especially when I'm parked at work, there are a lot of trees near where I park at work. And I'll come out and <laughs> it's like all four tires are just covered with them. I'm like, well, sorry guys, but Ugh. I gotta go home. So Ugh. some of you are about to have a really bad day. Yuck. Wanda stays behind to protect the core while the others finish evacuating the civilians. Ultron's primary body, having survived Hulk's throttling somehow, steals the Quinjet and begins firing on everything he can. Clint, who went back to rescue a Sokovian child, is about to be Ultron's next victim when Pietro sacrifices himself to shield Clint and the child from the gunfire. Hulk delivers Natasha to the helicarrier before jumping to the Quinjet and throwing Ultron out of it. In her grief and rage over the death of her brother, Wanda abandons her post and takes revenge by destroying Ultron's primary body. This allows one of Ultron's remaining bots to get to the core and flip the engine so that the city is now rocketing towards Earth. Vision rescues Wanda from the city just as Tony and Thor destroy the core, blowing the remaining landmass into a billion pieces, as opposed to one big piece. Not wanting there to be any chance of him harming Natasha, Hulk departs in the Quinjet for parts unknown. Vision tracks down the last of Ultron's bots and destroys it. Vision's brief conversation with the final Ultron body is another favorite scene of mine. You know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I think this scene is very Star Trek-like, which is probably why I like it so much. Ultron argues that humans are flawed and that, yes, they are ultimately probably doomed. Vision's response is wonderful because he actually agrees with Ultron on these points. But he also points out what Ultron is missing. He says there is grace in their failings. And he also says that a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. And I just think that's a really elegant statement about the human condition. And it's being delivered by something that's not human. So I just found that scene very poignant. Clint returns home and retires. Tony meets up with Cap and Thor at the new Avengers facility in upstate New York to tell them that he's planning on stepping back from the team. We see Maria Hill 
Helen Cho and Eric Selvig helping to get things set up there in the new Avengers compound. Fury informs Natasha that they may have spotted the Quinjet splashing down in the ocean. Thor departs for Asgard to continue investigating the mysterious forces that have brought the Infinity Stones into play. Cap and Natasha prepare to train a new group of Avengers, including Rhodey, War Machine, The Vision, Sam Wilson, aka The Falcon, and Wanda. Almost none of that turns out to be the case for any of the characters in the upcoming movies. Like, I don't know if you noticed that, but Clint is essentially forced out of retirement. Tony most definitely does not step away from the team. I guess the only thing that stays mostly true for a bit anyway is that Rhodey, Vision, Sam, and Wanda basically become Avengers. So that's basically the movie, although we get an end credit sequence that's got the marble statue. Apparently that statue does exist, and I think it looks really cool. In a mid credit sequence, we see Thanos apparently dissatisfied with the failure of his various hired guns and minions, putting a metal gauntlet on his left hand and saying, fine, I'll do it myself. The end. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about characters and actors. Let me start off by saying that because this movie is so heavily plot-driven, I frankly don't think there are many noteworthy performances in it, so this part might actually be shorter than usual. But, as always, we will start off with Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark slash Iron Man. Next to Spider-Man Homecoming, I think this is probably RDJ's blandest outing as Tony Stark. Yeah, we get the whole suit of armor around the world thing, but... I argue that you don't really feel the implications of that or how passionate Tony is about it until Civil War. I don't think he's necessarily bland. I just don't like him. He's... (laughs) A jerk, and not even for a good reason, really. I understand he's traumatized, both from what has happened to him in previous Iron Man movies at this point and in Avengers, but he makes it sound like it's everyone else's fault, especially in this movie. Like, it is most definitely his fault that Ultron exists, but he wants to be mad at everyone else and blame them. That's kind of my problem with Tony for the rest of the MCU. He keeps acting like he's the only one having to do the dirty work and clean up after everyone else when he's the one who started it. He's the reason Wanda and Pietro turned to Strucker. He's the reason that Ultron exists. I mean, the only thing he's got going for him is that he didn't create Thanos himself, but that's (laughs) hardly a consolation at this point. You're talking about that now, and I think we've talked at length before about Tony's redemption arc and kind of him trying to make the journey to be less selfish and becoming more selfless. And I think overall that certainly happens, but it's almost as if the nature of his selfishness is changing so that it's like instead of him oh I'm just doing everything for myself and you know oh I just like to go out and get drunk and bed women and be a jerk now it's like he's got a messiah complex now that's kind of like oh you know the earth needs to be saved humans need to be saved and you know only I can do it and everyone else is wrong for thinking I shouldn't be doing it I can do this I can build Ultron but I have to do this because I have to save the world Chris Hemsworth as Thor honestly the best scene with Thor in this movie is that that last scene where they're cutting up about the hammer and he's about to leave for Asgard. And yet it's Cap, oddly enough, who gets, I think, the funniest lines in that scene with the whole, is the elevator worthy if you put the elevator's hammer down? Elevator's not in. worthy. Elevator's not worthy. Thor doesn't really have much to do in this movie, I think, except take his shirt off. He's just kind of there to advance the plot like much of this movie. Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner slash the Hulk. There are two or three performances in this film that do stand out for me a bit, and Mark Ruffalo's is one of them. I love his characterization of Bruce Banner as this very earnest but somewhat clueless scientist who is willing to hulk out when it's necessary, even though he clearly hates doing it. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, he's very much against building Ultron, and he does let Tony know that outright. And yet, he's also sympathetic to the idea, probably partly because he's also a scientist, and probably because he's Tony's friend. He's got a lot of nuance, 
And believe me, if there's one thing this movie needs desperately, it's nuance. And, you know, I know you hate the Banner-Natasha thing, but at the very least, I think Banner's reaction to that whole situation is very realistic. It's like part of him seems oblivious to her advances, and maybe he genuinely is, but part of him also seems to use that as a smokescreen to try to bury the fact that he may have feelings for her too, but is too afraid to engage for fear of hurting her or someone else. There's just a, a certain complexity about him that I really like in this movie. I really like Mark Ruffalo. I like him as Bruce Banner, and I like him in all the other movies that I've seen him in. And I like him because you're right, like, he's earnest. And whether that's something he truly feels or something he just puts into every character, I've always really enjoyed that. I also think he's good at playing funny without overdoing it. Bruce Banner has a ton of great sarcastic slash kind of annoyed lines that I think don't get a lot of attention. In terms of the Natasha and Banner angle, I actually understand why he reacts the way that he does this sort of confused and bewildered sort of response because that's how I would feel too you know like to Mm -hmm. me this relationship feels very sudden and there's not a whole lot of backstory as to why it would be happening especially given that most of what we've seen other interactions so far have been violent traumatizing or fight scenes if I were him I'd be confused as to why this woman who I've only ever threatened as a giant green rage monster is hitting on me also I like what you say about the great sort of sarcastic annoyed lines that don't get a lot of attention not when I'm building a murder bot line is probably one of my favorites in the movie he's he's Uh, so funny yeah he's very funny Chris Evans as Steve Rogers slash Captain America. Mm, Yeah, I think we can pretty much leave this one alone. Yep. Uh, I think we've beaten this horse to death. I agree. So, um, yeah. (laughs) All right, let's just move on. (laughs) Scarlett. (laughs) Wow, we we threw Cap under the bus. Who'd have thunk? Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow. I kind of felt like you should chime in first, given how strongly you feel about Natasha in this movie. Did you want to say anything now? or I actually forgot to write anything here. I'm not entirely sure if it was forgetting or if it was just that I was annoyed and so I didn't write anything. I like Scarlett Johansson. I like Natasha Romanoff. I have issues with how she is written. I have issues specifically with this movie, how she's written, and I have issues with what happens in Endgame. And I won't spoil it here because I don't obviously think it's Scarlett Johansson's fault. I think she does a good job. Clearly, we can have a good and complex and nuanced Natasha because we've had it before. We had it in Winter Soldier. I don't think that's what we get here. I don't think any of what Natasha says or does in this movie is complex or interesting. Again, don't like the relationship with Banner. I just don't like it. That's fair. I think she's great. She's great. And I love Natasha the character. I just think this is a bad outing. I still stand by my belief that the Romanoff Banner relationship, such as it is, is not completely out of left field thing that you seem to think it is. Now, having said that, I've watched the movie with a more critical eye for the first time in a long time recently. And I do think that Natasha in this movie comes off as much more of a fawning over the guy than I would expect from her. Maybe Joss Whedon was in a particularly misogynistic mood when he wrote the script. Maybe some marketing monkey over the studio decided that they needed to keep the female audience. Who knows? I I really don't know. She also seems a little bit less active in this movie. But then I remember Scarlett Johansson was pregnant during the filming of this film. She's got this incredible stunt double named uh, Heidi Moneymaker. I'm sure she had her work cut out for her, no doubt. But it does somehow seem like Natasha does a lot more talking than busting of heads in this film. Like you said, that's not to take away from Scarlet, who's fantastic 
in every one of these films, I think. She's just doing her job, reading what she's given on the script. So if they want her to do something that's out of character, at least she's doing it really well. <laughs> that's my philosophy. And I think some people dislike the lullaby stuff. All I'm going to say is I personally would have absolutely no issue whatsoever with Scarlett Johansson gently caressing my arm while speaking softly to me in sultry tones. Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton slash Hawkeye. There wasn't really a good spot to put this in the plot synopsis, but one of my favorite bits of this movie is when they're fighting in Sokovia and Hawkeye and Wanda are about to go help Cap and Pietro swoops by and takes Wanda and shouts, keep up old man, and Hawkeye knocks an arrow and just goes, nobody would know. Nobody. <laughs> the last time I saw him, an Ultron was sitting on him. Yeah, he'll be missed. I missed him already. <laughs> and he starts trotting off. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good scene. Also, again, I love his family. I know I've said it already. I, some people think it's stupid, and I do think it is a bit smushed in there for the story. But I like knowing that he has a life outside of S.H.I.E.L.D. first and then avenging now. I think it explains a lot about him. Also, I'm glad to see more of him considering he was just you know, evil and brooding and mind-controlled in his first real outing in Avengers. Yeah, to an extent, the farm stuff was, you know, as you say, smushed in there for the story, but I'm just now realizing that one of the advantages of this movie, you know, even though the way the stuff was introduced to us in this movie may have been presented a little clumsily, it gets used later on in the MCU, I think, brilliantly. And the way Clint's family comes back into play in Endgame is brilliant. And so it's kind of like the farm scenes in Age of Ultron were kind of shoved in there very awkwardly, but at the same time, I'm kind of like glad it was there because if not for that, we wouldn't have you wouldn't have that whole arc with Hawkeye in Endgame. So mixed blessings, I suppose. Talked about how I liked a couple performances, including Mark Ruffalo's Jeremy Renner's performance. The other one that I really think deserves some praise. Hawkeye's got a lot to do in this movie. He's always been sort of the everyman of the Avengers. I mean, if you can call a marksman slash assassin who almost never misses an everyman. This movie affirms that by introducing the audience to this very kind of conventional family. You know, he's got a wife and 2.1 kids with a third one on the way, a nice house. I don't recall if there's a white picket fence there, but I wouldn't be surprised. And after having seen everything he can do with a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent slash Avenger slash superhero, it somehow makes sense to me that he's also the most average of the Avengers in all those other ways. And we also see that duality reflected in his conversation with Wanda and Sokovia. You know, he's acknowledging the absolute ridiculousness of the situation, fighting an army of robots with a bow and arrow in a flying city. He's always been kind of a cynic. When they're all trying to lift Mjolnir at the party, he's just kind of like, ah, come on, it's a trick. And he's just, you know, kind of being a brat about the whole thing. But he's learned to accept the weirdness of being an Avenger. And he chooses to just do his job despite that. Again, nuance, just like we had with Bruce. We get nuance with Clinton Barton. Aaron Taylor Johnson as Pietro Maximoff. Again, I said that I like Pietro. I like this Pietro in particular. I think he's interesting because, you know, earlier you did mention that Joss Whedon likes to build up characters and get you attached to them and then kill someone else all of a sudden when you think it's going to be the person that you got attached to that's going to get killed. Obviously, he did that here where he built it up with Clint Barton and then killed Pietro. And surprise, <laughs> especially with right before that, Clint joking that he was going to kill him first. But yeah, I think Aaron Taylor Johnson is cute and I like this Pietro. 
too bad he got got. Maybe if we saw more of Pietro in this movie, I'd like him more. Aside from the cool bowling the bad guys over thing that I talked about earlier, I just don't think there's enough of him in this movie for me to say much of anything about him. And that's not meant to be a criticism of Aaron Taylor Johnson. If anything, it's once again a criticism of Joss Whedon's writing. Between the post-credits scene in Winter Soldier and the beginning of this movie, they kind of build both him and Wanda up to be super important. And then to me, he just kind of shows up, does a few speedster things, and then he's dead. I just don't see a whole lot of substance from this character in this movie. Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff. I feel like we get a little bit more out of Elizabeth Olsen than we do Aaron Taylor Johnson in this movie. Not like a lot more, but a little bit. I know how Wanda clearly states that her motivation for doing most of what she does has to do with getting back at Tony. I get that. Having her master plan be to mind whammy all the Avengers in the hope that they destroy themselves from the inside out, it just seems like too much of a long game for either her or Pietro. I mean, you need to have really thought through a plan like that in order for it to work. And and I'm sorry, but she's no Baron Zemo in that regard. Moreover, did she and Pietro really think that siding with the villainous-looking robot that's building an army of other villainous-looking robots the right call? I mean, call me crazy, but... Well, it's not like the kids who get orphaned because of a missile attack necessarily have the best critical thinking skills. I mean, this isn't an episode about WandaVision, of course, but I think what she did there was definitely an overreaction as well. People do strange stuff when they're grieving, and I doubt her and Pietro had many choices when it came to getting back at Tony for what was done to them under his name. And after Strucker, who she probably realized was bad, how much worse could a weird robot be? You know, at least she figured it out enough time to save mostly everybody? I think your point about the grief, yeah, that does make sense. And yeah, we've seen WandaVision, and I think she, Elizabeth Olsen is amazing in that show. I think she deserves an Emmy, and the whole, the grief angle that's played out there makes a ton of sense in that series, given what we see Wanda go through after Age of Ultron. I don't know, I know, yeah, I, I want to get back at Tony Stark because I hold him responsible for killing my parents. I know that's her reason, but it just didn't seem to kind of grab me enough. It was just kind of hard for me to make the conclusion oh yeah she's grief stricken therefore that's why she's not thinking straight paul bettany as the voice of jarvis and as the vision happy 50th birthday to paul bettany technically it was yesterday he'd been voicing jarvis and technically for... three weeks ago by the time we published this <laughs> but, <laughs> true true enough he'd been voicing jarvis for what seven years when this film came out and now we get to see him in the flesh on screen in the mcu for the first time as vision i like this performance because i think we get a lot of mileage out of him for not much screen time he gives us this artificial life form that's insanely intelligent and has the scientific precision of a supercomputer, but is also very curious, inquisitive, and sensitive. He says he finds grace in human failings, and I don't think you see a lot of androids pointing that out. He's not like Data on Star Trek The Next Generation. He's a machine that is clearly capable from the get-go of emotional intelligence. I don't really have any deep feelings towards Vision. I always did really like Jarvis. And somehow it kind of made me sad when Tony had to switch over to Friday, even though I know technically Jarvis lives on in Vision. I do like Paul Bettany, though, and I think he's really engaging and very good as both Jarvis and Vision. I never warmed up to Friday. I don't know. No, I didn't I don't know if you're ever supposed to, but it's like I just never did. She was just always kind of Jarvis's replacement. I don't know if 
that was the main reason why or just like she never really had a personality it's like okay there's this irish woman talking in tony's head i mean what are we supposed to get from that who's peter's ai because i like her was it karen is it karen i like her it, she's voiced by i think it's jennifer connelly pretty soon you're going to be able to do a six degrees of the mcu once thor love and thunder comes out we'll be able to tie jennifer connelly from the spider-man movies paul bettany and russell crowe to a beautiful mind so Six Degrees of the MCU. James Spader as Ultron, voice and motion capture performance. I had so much hope for Ultron, mostly out of what I saw in the trailer because they made it seem like he was going to be this super evil thing. And then he was just sort of so-so in the movie. Ultron as a character also kind of feels like a cop-out to me. There are tons of sci-fi books where the humans build an AI to make everything better, but as soon as the AI becomes self-aware and examines everything around it, they immediately go into kill all the humans mode. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah. That was fun the first couple times in the 70s. It's not fun the millionth time in the 2010s. He doesn't even really want to kill just the Avengers. He wants to kill all of life because it's all bad to him. The only good thing is him. At least that's the vibe that he's giving off. Either way, he was just boring to me. Although I guess he's a good setup for Thanos, who doesn't only want to clear out life on Earth, but also kind of the universe in general. Yeah, every once in a while, God throws a stone and he's winding up. Isn't that what he says in the movie? James Spader is one of the youngest of my so-called veteran actors to make an appearance in the MCU. He was about 55 when this movie came out. He's only five years older than RDJ, with whom he co-starred in Less Than Zero, way back in 1987, by the way. A phenomenal early performance from RDJ in that movie. I guess you can say that he's sufficiently evil-sounding in the movie. Uh, Joss Whedon wanted him to be kind of this Frankenstein monster who's kind of complicated because he's manifesting pain and whatnot. That may have been Joss Whedon's intention, but I just don't see that here. I mean, to me, Ultron comes off basically as a stock villain who wants to destroy the Avengers because he thinks they're an impediment to cleansing the Earth to make it better. Not really clear what's motivating him to think this way, and that makes him uninteresting to me. I do like the way that Spader plays him with that touch of smartassery. He is, after all, ultimately a product of the mind and personality of Tony Stark. Kind of makes sense. Andy Serkis as Ulysses Claw. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> that's, that's really the only thing I had to say about him in this movie. I mean, I love Andy Serkis. I like Claw, but what else is there to say? Okay, let me talk about uh, music real quick since we do that in every show. The score for this movie was done by Brian Tyler. It's his third and final Marvel film after Iron Man 3 and Thor The Dark World. Veteran film composer Danny Elfman famously composed the scores for Tim Burton's Batman films and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films. Came on board late in the day, apparently, to provide additional music. Why exactly that was the case is one of the great mysteries of the MCU. Some say that it's because Marvel wasn't entirely thrilled with Tyler's work. Other People say that he bailed partway through the production to go score Fast and Furious 7, the production of which had resumed after Paul Walker's tragic death in such a manner that it now coincided with the production of Ultron. Both of those films ended up being released in the same month. Brian Tyler has a long history with that franchise, and some think that he may have actually just voluntarily eaten his contract with Marvel so that he could go back and work on those Fast and Furious films, hence Elfman's arrival to finish the score. The Tyler stuff is good, but... 
you know, like his other two MCU scores, nothing about them particularly grabs me, you know, with the possible exception of his theme for Iron Man and Iron Man 3. At least there was a main theme for those other two movies. This, there's no real main theme in Age of Ultron, and I think that's one of the reasons why I find the score largely forgettable. I am glad that Danny Elfman, who I know has great respect for the themes uh, that came before him whenever he works on a sequel, he did that in Justice League. He has that really cool reworked Alan Silvestri Avengers main theme. You can tell it's Danny Elfman, but it does play a nice homage to Alan Silvestri and the style in which he made that theme. That is our review of Avengers Age of Ultron. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We'll be back, hopefully in only three weeks, <laughs> with a fun show. Well, we're going to have our review of Ant-Man. So we got our first origin story film in quite some time. Probably the first origin story movie since the first Thor. So I mean, that will does be Guardians exciting. of the Galaxy not count as an origin story? Oh, that's true. Guardians. I forgot about Guardians. Yeah, that's true. Okay. It's our first solo origin story movie. How about that? I think it's also another one of the movies that I may have seen, but I do not remember. Ooh. So this will be a fun thing for Emily to see if she remembers the movie or not. We are hoping to have joining us for our review of Ant-Man, our good friend Cherokee Lopez, whom, as we have talked about in our various social media postings, has provided us with that wonderful, amazing new artwork that we have been using. We can't see it on Apple Podcasts yet. We're working on that. But if you see our SoundCloud stream, we have that artwork work there. Cherokee is responsible for that. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And we are looking forward to having her talk with us about Ant-Man in three weeks. So that'll be exciting. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. We all hope you all stay safe. Have a good night. We'll talk to you later. See you around. Have a good night.